and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl. Well, I'm a screen guy. Oh, Pennsylvania. We love Pennsylvania. Behind every winning congressional candidate is a great campaign manager. Now, don't waste your time advertising for one of these on LinkedIn or Indeed.com. The truth is, there really isn't a job description, uh, but I'll give it a try. For somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 months, if you're lucky, maybe 18 months, you'll be gainfully employed. Now, that means you're going to work 80 hours, more likely 100 hours a week. You're going to oversee a multi-million dollar budget but it's never going to be enough. You'll have diverse employees. They're almost always going to be under the age of 30. And you're going to have countless eyes that are watching your every move. Now, at the start of the 2020 cycle, the top-tier talent fanned out from Orange County, California, to Oklahoma City, to upstate New York, and places in between. And uh, unfortunately, too many freshmen who got elected in 2018, they, they came up short and they lost in 2020. Now, fortunately for Pennsylvania Democrats, no incumbents lost. In today's episode, we're going to sit down with Katie Gladstone, who worked with Congresswoman Susan Wild, who represents a D plus one district. Now, that's political speak for as purple as can be. Starting in March, Katie had a pretty tall task. She had to recruit train and manage team in a congressional district that had not had a Democratic incumbent running for re-election since 1996. And by the way, just as she was getting started, the first few days on the job, a global pandemic hit. But ultimately, Congressman Wild won by four points in November, and Katie Gladstone's not working 80 and 100-hour weeks. And Katie, thanks so much. You've caught your breath, and welcome to my kitchen table. Well, we're living here. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be at your kitchen table. <laughs> so let's go back to the uh, first week in November. It probably seems like a year ago now. You know, what were the emotions going through your mind in the uh, 48 hours leading up to election day and 48 hours after the polls have closed? Great question. The 48 hours before election day, I guess, were two conflicting emotions. On the one hand, we were extremely locked into what ha- had to happen on election day itself and kind of all cylinders firing toward the results of that day. And on the other hand, I mean, just so much excitement. It was such a, I think we, we hoped that it would be as historic an election as it was and really wanted to see that come to fruition. Obviously wanted to see all of our work play out the way that we wanted it to. And also after the last four years, we're just so hopeful that, that things would change in 48 hours from that period that you just talked about. So that was kind of how I felt leading up to that day. I think at the same time, There was a lot of tempering of expectations that I had to do on my end about what we would know on election day itself, which certainly uh, proved accurate since we didn't know the results of 
Congresswoman Wilde's election or the results of the nationwide election for so much time after election day. So, you know, making sure that in a cycle where so many voters were participating by mail, that the process of counting those ballots and figuring out <laughs> when we could call the election and and when we would know we would wa- we would win, and making sure not only my boss um, and our team, but that our supporters knew that that might not happen on election day was something that we had to do before the day itself as well. In the 48 hours after election day, I mean, <laughs> definitely exhaustion. <laughs> it was an emotionally draining 48 hours. Um, not only not only did we not get a lot of sleep, but there was so much heightened anxiety over what was happening all around the country, not just in our district and not just in the state of Pennsylvania. You know, I, just being glued to CNN for so many days and, and is mostly what my memory is of that 48 hour period. Um, and then, as you said, like we were finally able to call Congresswoman Wilde's race uh, a couple days after Election Day, which was a huge sigh of relief. You know, I always thought that we were going to win in the period after Election Day. It was just a question of, of when we would be able to call the race. And then, you know, such elation when <laughs> when Joe Biden won. And we could finally say not only did we keep the House, we took the presidency. And then, of course, in January, when we when we took both Senate seats in Georgia, there was a excitement all over again in such an incredibly challenging year, such a different year for running campaigns. Democrats were able to do everything we wanted to do, which was an amazing feeling. So let's go back, you know, and this probably seems now like five years ago, but you get hired in March to come on board a race, which is deemed by the DCCC as a frontline race. Uh, One of the, the counties and the three counties that are part of the district was flipped and was one of these pivot counties. You know, I think our listeners would love to learn a little bit more about you. I mean, you're not originally from Pennsylvania, but you did a, an amazing job getting uh, the congresswoman reelected when, unfortunately, too many of her colleagues fell short. Sure. Uh, so I'm not originally from Pennsylvania, although I love the state of Pennsylvania, and I, I, I wish that I were from Pennsylvania. <laughs> I am a bit of a weird, weird person. Katie, get you on the voter rolls before 2020. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> Got to pay taxes there. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I grew up in Washington, D.C., in the city itself, which uh, makes me a bit of an anomaly as a human and also in politics. No one in the city is actually from here. So I'm, I'm always, you know, people kind of give me funny looks when I say that. But uh, my family didn't do anything in politics at all. I'm very much like the black sheep of my, of my family. They have no idea what I really do with my life. So it's, it's fun going to Thanksgiving every year. But I started working in Democratic campaigns, like so many young people, by kind of packing up my bags and moving to a primary state for a presidential campaign. I, I moved to New Hampshire in 2015 to work for Hillary Clinton, and I just absolutely fell in love with the work. For me, there is nothing more amazing than getting up every day and going to work for someone you believe in. And that was so much the case in 2015. It was so much the case for every candidate I've worked for. I've been pretty lucky since then, this year included. But it, it was an absolutely great experience. I think like <laughs> when I think back to my time being a field organizer, which is what I did for Hillary, it is absolutely the hardest job I've ever done. It, it's so exhausting. <laughs> You're working so hard, uh, but it is so absolutely rewarding and exhilarating. And uh, my team, if they listen to this podcast, will laugh because I always encourage everyone to, to be a field organizer at some point um, because it teaches you so much about yourself and what you're capable of. You know, you're part of something that's so much bigger than yourself, quite literally. You are one of hundreds of people around the country who's doing the exact same work with the same goal in mind, but you have the opportunity to meet people who have such varied life experiences and different stories from your own, and that can really change the way you see the world in a way that not many jobs that you have right out of college can. 
So obviously I fell in love with it and, and yeah, stayed in campaign work ever since I, I moved into fundraising after that. Um, I did fundraising for democratic senators for a little while. Also managed a special election runoff campaign in the Atlanta suburbs in 2017. And this past cycle worked obviously for Susan Wilde. So that's my background. Well, I'm certainly eager to talk fundraising and talk field. I know our listeners will be uh, ready to get into the nuts and bolts. Uh, but so March comes, there's talk of COVID-19, there's this new word pandemic circulating, and you know, everyone's assuming it's going to be an April primary in Pennsylvania. And you know, you're figuring out uh, how to hire a team. You know, what's, what's going through your mind as all this is swirling? The first thing I'll say is my first day as Susan Wilde's campaign manager was the day the world shut down. It was the day after Tom Hanks and his wife tested positive for coronavirus and a basketball player from Utah Jazz uh, who kind of touched all those microphones at a press conference tested positive and the next day no one went into work. So that was my first day on the job. So I think for me, like as for so many of us, I think there was kind of this dual mindset of, okay, there's a really big thing that seems to be happening that we don't fully understand. We don't know what how it's going to affect our work. We don't know how it's going to affect the environment we live in. There's a whole host of things we can't predict. So you kind of just have to shove that off to the side and focus on the work that has to be done, which is what you were just saying. We had to hire a team. We had to focus on a primary. When I started, it was pretty clear that the primary was going to be pushed back. We just didn't know how far, like when that date would be moved to. So... And for our listeners, the Republicans, as I recall, had a pretty nasty primary. Fortunately, the congresswoman did not have a Democratic primary. Exactly. If you could speak to, uh, it's always fun to look over uh, the fence, so to speak, and see the food fight that the other side has. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think we, it was interesting to watch that dynamic play out. Susan Wilde's opponent in twenty in this cycle, a woman named Lisa Scheller just filed to run for re-election against her. I think it's, it's not unlikely that Lisa Scheller's main primary opponent, um, Dean Browning, will also run again. So that that uh, that food fight, as you put it, may happen again in 2022. But yeah, so the primary wasn't something that we were focused on outside of fundraising. But, uh, but you know, we were anxious to actually have an opponent and be in the general election. So kind of getting past that date was 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 an aspect of our campaign that that we were focused on for a little while. We just, uh, we should tease that out for listeners. So you were able to take $2,800 from an individual donor before the primary. Right. And then $2,800 afterward. Exactly. So the date of that primary, which differs by each state, is incredibly important. Exactly. I guess you're also coming on board as the first quarter's ending. Yep. Right. So, you know, you're, you're, which is a good barometer of, uh, of where the budget's going to take you and, diversity of your donors. Uh, so if you could speak to that as well. Sure. I mean, that was one reason the pandemic was so difficult because the last two weeks of a quarter are always extremely important. The last two weeks of the first quarter, like you just mentioned, were, were incredibly important. And one of the effects of the onset of the pandemic early on last cycle was that it essentially brought fundraising to a halt. We couldn't obviously ask people for money in this environment where every of, of just such dramatic uncertainty and, and the lives of every single person in the world, let alone the United States. So, you know, I mean, I, on the one hand, that was sort of an even playing field. All candidates were in the same boat that way. On the other hand, those are two really important weeks in terms of money that we essentially lost. That said, Susan Wilde is a terrific fundraiser and had a great first quarter. So that was helpful. But you must have had, uh, there, there must have been events on the books, oh, yeah. in-person March events that had to be scrapped. Well, yeah. And it was, it was always, it was kind of a cat and mouse game at first because we didn't know how bad the, we, no one, our, our campaign team, our, our donors, our event hosts, no one knew what the pandemic 
was and what it was going to look like in a few weeks. We didn't know how long this thing was going to last. So it was kind of this constant back and forth of, okay, how are things looking now? Like, can we still have this event that we've raised for that, you know, donors have, have planned for, or, you know, what is the, what is the line? When do we, when do we make the call and say these things all have to happen virtually, which we did pretty quickly. In fact, we canceled all those events um, for probably the first mm, three weeks after I started, maybe even a little bit longer than that. I'm not, I don't remember now. We never had a single in-person fundraising event last cycle. We didn't, we didn't have a single, we had a few very socially distanced outdoor field attend events at the end of the cycle with capped attendance of 25 people. But those were the only in-person events we did for the entire cycle. So, wow. Let's stick with the fundraising. You mentioned uh, the previous cycle, you you were a fundraiser and in a past life, I was a fundraiser. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, I tell folks it's, it's the best system and the worst system that we have in America. It's, it's transparent to a large degree, but it's the worst system because uh, there's so much money flowing through. So in 2018 fundraising versus 2020 fundraising, completely different. Open seat versus incumbent. The congresswoman made a pledge not to take PAC money. If you could speak about uh, that, just the dynamics of her schedule even before the pandemic with, with being a sitting member of Congress and having to spend time in Washington, D.C., you know, for better or worse, uh, in top tier races like this, fundraising drives so much of the schedule. So if you could speak to that and then also speak to the team that you uh, uh, you built out. Yeah. So there's a lot to unpack in that question. I guess I'll start with the Congresswoman's pledge not to take corporate PAC money, which she kept and, and very much has stuck to. It's it's an important pledge for her. She doesn't she believes that she should be accountable to the voters and to her constituents and that she shouldn't be beholden to corporate PAC interests. It does mean that she can raise less money. There's a whole chunk of money that she can't take because of that pledge. But for her, it is an important value system and says something about what she believes the person in that office should be uh, responsible for. So that said, it does mean that you have to be a little bit more creative about how you fundraise and how you approach fundraising and your finance plan um, in order to fund a multi-million dollar congressional race, especially in a year, as we've just talked about, of such fundraising uncertainty in so many ways. So I did fundraising in 2018 um, for Senator. And when I think about the biggest differences in the 2018 cycle and the 2020 cycle, obviously there's the pandemic, right? Like we've just talked about that ad nauseum. We can kind of set that aside for a second. Another major difference was the comp was fundraising. I mean, in 2018, first of all, Donald Trump's name is not on the ballot. The it's the first year with a serious challenge to the idea that Trump and Trump's party and Trumpism is a lasting thing in American politics. And that, you know, the first time the Democrats can prove that we can take it all back. And before I say what I was just gonna say, I would also say that, um, that taking back the House was a huge priority in 2018. Uh, in 2020, we had taken the House, and, and of course we had to keep it, but taking the Senate and taking the White House were also major priorities. So in 2018, there was just this massive influx of money for very competitive races. In 2020, there was very significant resource competition. Fundraising, especially if you weren't at the top of the ticket, was challenging given that environment. And what it meant was that for a congressional race like ours, our fundraising operation had to be as airtight as it possibly could be. Um, we had to be very, very exact and very precise and very organized about everything we did. It also meant we had to be scrappy and creative and figure out how to get our message through the rest of the noise in an environment that, you know, there was, it was just so difficult. Donors, understandably and thankfully, as it turned out, wanted to invest in key Senate races and in the presidency. 
<laughs> and and given this time of uncertainty with you know immense economic uncertainty, people were more hesitant than they had been in 2018. I, I felt to give away the farm and give money to all these races. So that so that was a major difference. You know, uh, you, you just used the word hesitant. Maybe I'm hesitant to ask this, but uh, it's kind of survival of the fittest, right? I mean, it's it's awful to say, but there's what were there three dozen or so frontline races, and you know, you're you're going up against really, really other great freshmen who are in similarly purple districts. And, you know, you need to essentially distinguish yourselves. And even in Pennsylvania or next door in New Jersey, uh, to the extent that your donors were regional, there's a lot of competition. So I guess, uh, did you enact any sort of joint committees or to what extent? um, We did. And actually, I don't think that, I think that for fundraisers, like, like you are a, you might say that it's survival of the fittest. I don't think my boss, I don't think Susan Wilde would ever describe it that way. I think one of the amazing things about particularly, and this is the only lens that I've seen this through. So apologies to the male members of Congress, but particularly for the female uh, freshman incumbents this cycle, there was just an immense amount of camaraderie, not only in the jobs that they do every day, but also when that came to fundraising. Even in the state of Pennsylvania, Susan uh, is one of this, this group that's called themselves the Fab Four, these four freshman incumbent congresswoman from the state of Pennsylvania who were extremely helpful in our fundraising. Um, we did a lot of efforts together. We had joint committees, like you just mentioned. I think they understand the di- understood the dynamics of Susan's district and this race and how and why it was a frontline district and how difficult this district can be and wanted to help the congresswoman as, as much as they could financially. I think the other thing that I would say about distinguishing yourself in fundraising to me, that doesn't mean you compare yourself to the person in the district next to you and say, this is why I'm better than that person is and why you should give money to me. To me, what that means is that you have an ability to connect with the, the person on the other end of the phone in a real and meaningful way and talk about shared values and what you've done in Congress and what you hope to, to do and actually build a relationship with that person. And, and if you're able to do that, that does distinguish yourself, but not many people can. And is really important in not only raising money, but in you know, I think that translates in a whole host of ways. Um, it translates to how you communicate with your constituents. It translates to your ability to listen to your constituents and actually serve them in Congress every day. And that's something Susan Wilde is phenomenal at. So that was an easy way we were able to just distinguish ourselves and raise money in this election cycle. Let's jump off of fundraising and pivot to uh, to field. You know, you're you're up against an opponent who doesn't have to think about building a schedule based on fundraising. Two and a half million dollars of her own money with the national party behind her that didn't curtail all door-to-door activity mm-hmm. and in-person mm-hmm. events. So to the extent we can look over and we're reacting to what the other side was doing, they're registering voters. They're doing everything a traditional campaign would be doing in the summer. How are you looking at a field program as you know, you're looking at an incredibly diverse district and knowing that that fields is what gets you over the final 4% yeah. hump. So just on your point of diversity, it was an incredibly diverse district, not only in income level and in terms of, you know, the shape of the district itself is it's it's considered a, a largely suburban ex-urban district. But there are urban pockets. There's Allentown, third biggest city in the state of Pennsylvania, and Bethlehem and, and Easton, these more urban pockets within within this district that then have suburbs and then there's farmland. So it's, it is a diverse district in terms of way of life. It's also a diverse district in terms of ethnicity. 15% of the district is Latinx. So yes, it is a very diverse district. And in a district like that, field is extremely important. 
I talked about this a little bit at first. I came up through field. So I, I as a manager, know how important field is um, in winning campaigns. That said, it was never really a question in my mind and uh, as whether or not we would do in-person activities this cycle. And as I said, we didn't. We did not door-to-door canvas. Our opponent did. That has not ever been something that I regretted. I made the choice pretty early on in conjunction with Congresswoman that it was not worth it to put our staff, our volunteers, and voters at risk by doing those activities, especially when if we could figure out a way to move that activity online in a way that actually worked, which we did. We had a phenomenal field director who was just like as creative as she had to be, given the, the nature of this pandemic, who figured out a way to conduct a large-scale, very ambitious field program online. One of the benefits of being in the 7th Congressional District in Pennsylvania was that the legacy of volunteerism and campaign volunteering was huge. There was a very active, experienced volunteer community in that district, which was helpful in when we had to, to tell those people to move activities online. If we had had to build that organization from scratch, it would have been much harder to translate that to an online environment. But because this organization sort of already existed to some degree, it was easier to kind of call the grass tops in that organization, talk to them about what our program is going to look like, and then have those people organize their groups and help us with this process. So that was that was very helpful. And I don't want to discount that. There's listeners, plenty of listeners who have done uh, door knocking and understand field, but uh, still, this seems like a jump. I mean, this is a major leap. Even if you have folks ready to phone bank uh, or write postcards or how do you do that? I mean, how do you, you're working from lists from 2018, people might've moved, people might've taken interest in a different campaign. You know, you can't be in person to kind of build up an esprit de corps. I mean, how, how, how did your team do this? Well, the way we, we thought about it was to ask ourselves, how do you, okay, you can't have an in-person face-to-face conversation. How can you mimic that as directly as possible? How can you mirror that in an online format? And what we ended up doing was, basically doing all of our all of our volunteer activities through Zoom in ways that tried to mimic the feel of a campaign office like you just mentioned and build up that sense of camaraderie and among volunteers which is so important and try to mimic those face-to-face conversations as much as we possibly could it's not the same a phone call is not the same as a an in-person interaction with another person but it's what we had to work with so really honing in on the quality of those phone conversations honing in on how you build a relationship with someone over the phone when you can't and when you can't see them and smile with them and like laugh about things in person, training our volunteers really tightly in doing that was was really important. I mean, we couldn't have done it without the technology that we have today. I don't know what we would have done if this had happened five years ago, 10 years ago, because, you know, with breakout rooms that Zoom allows you and I'm sure other platforms too allow allow you to use and and the massive number of people that that technology can accommodate online, we were able to do those things pretty successfully and have thousands and thousands of conversations with voters that we needed to not only educate about how to request a mail-in ballot, how to fill out that mail-in ballot correctly, how to return that mail-in ballot (laughs) leading up to election day, but then also do a traditional GOTV and talk to people who still needed to go vote. We wouldn't have been able to do any of that without the technology that we had. And I think, thankfully, we were able to do it. I don't know how different the outcome would be if we had done in-person activity. Obviously, that's not something that I can quantify. 
What's uh, I want to get into the mechanics of mail-in in, in a moment. You had mentioned the the Latino community, and you know I'm a bit of a data dork. I think politics is an equal part art and science. You know, I looked back to 2000, which was uh, you know ages and ages ago, but it was a comparable that you had the incumbent running for his first reelect, Pat Toomey, and the 2000 numbers of the Latino community were a fraction of what they are today. In the district, the Latino community has more than doubled uh, over the course of 20 years. I can certainly envision, I think a lot of our listeners can envision buses coming into Pennsylvania in the final month of a campaign of people ready to door knock and spend their day going door to door in densely populated urban neighborhoods. How do, you, how do you replicate that? How do you engage voters, whether they be a Latino or otherwise, who might not have a phone number on file or the phone number on file on the voter rolls was different than it was uh, two years ago, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a great question. We started doing it very early on beginning in July. We started having weekly Spanish speaking phone banks into targeted zip codes in the district that have dense Latino populations. And (laughs) our volunteers who did those phone banks were, I would say appropriately aggressive when they talked to a voter who lived in those neighborhoods about asking them to join us and volunteer and also make phone calls and talk to their neighbors. So uh, we were able to recruit people for these phone banks pretty well. We often had surrogates on these phone banks, other Hispanic members of Congress or the Congresswoman herself would join these phone banks and kind of kick them off. And we called them virtual canvas launches and speak in Spanish to Spanish speakers about why this election was important and why volunteering with this campaign was so important in order to relax it wild. So we started doing all of that pretty early on. Um, and that was really important in terms of familiarizing people with the congresswoman. But it's, you know, all that said, Ari, it's really hard. It is hard to reach people as effectively over the phone as it is in person, particularly when you know, not just in the, not just in the Latino community, but you know, you said this yourself. When people move around, and there's there's a high high degree of moving into the Allentown and communities like that, and moving out of Allentown and communities like that, and phone numbers do change and all that. So it takes a lot of work, which is one reason we did it so early was to come through those phone numbers and see what worked and what didn't. It also kind of gave us a good trial and error period. You know, starting in July, uh, let us see what what we thought worked from a programmatic perspective and what we needed to improve on. I will say that. As we got closer to November, there was a strong coordinated campaign in Pennsylvania between the Biden campaign um, and races down ballot. And there were, the Biden, led by the Biden campaign, there were drive-through caravanas through the state of Pennsylvania that, that also came through the Lehigh Valley and that Susan Wild helped lead. And these were essentially car Wait, what, what was that term? Caravanas, what they called it. Yeah, basically car- it was a caravan. Um, car that, you know... Uh-huh to be safe and socially distant in coronavirus, but still have safe rallies. People would stay in or around their cars. Um, there, sur- there would be Hispanic surrogates, again, you know, members of Congress or, or Spanish-speaking celebrities, that kind of thing, who would talk into bullhorns near their cars to a crowd of people assembled also in their cars. So it was very safe, but it was also, it was an in-person experience. Let's talk about the opposite of that. You had a, you probably don't want to remember this, you had President Trump and members of his family visit the district on multiple occasions in the final uh, few months of the campaign. How, if at all, did you and your team decide to react to that? 
uh, or was it just we're going to run our race and having people socially distanced with signs on the other side of the street? That's not that that's not the game we're going to play. I mean, you know, politics is as much proactive as it is uh, reactive. Well, I think our thinking was to kind of let that to to stay away from that and let our opponent's actions speak for themselves and let the fact that she was tying herself to Donald Trump and his family speak for itself. Um, there wasn't much we had to do on that. It was clear that this was, I think it's become clear over the last four years that <laughs> whether or not some Republicans like it to be this way, that this has become the, part of, the party of, the Republican Party has become the party of Donald Trump. And that was certainly true this election. Um, I mean, the fact that our opponent would introduce Donald Trump's son at rallies whenever she could, pose in pictures next to him, him meeting Donald Trump Jr. I mean, she, if I, if I recall, she even got in the car and drove to completely different parts of Pennsylvania to be at those rallies, be at the tarmac. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Air exactly. Force One. Exactly. And, you know, there, other than pointing out the fact that she, that that had happened, there wasn't much that we needed to do on that. Our opponent drew a clear distinction between herself and Susan Wilde. Susan Wilde is a very bipartisan member of Congress. Um, she has taken some votes against the majority of the rest of her party. On the other hand, our opponent was someone who was tying herself very clearly to Donald Trump and to the, to the party that he represented. Yeah, but did G- GOP turnout was up 15%. I mean, they, they had voter registration numbers that I think surprised a lot of our listeners. I'm, I'm sure they surprised your team uh, as they were, they were, they were, they were busy bees all throughout the summer finding new voters uh, and uh, ultimately yeah, turning them they out. Were. They were, but I think like, like most elections, this is an election about values. And we wanted to keep talking about the values of Susan Wilde and what she stood for and let our opponent talk about the negatives for herself. And we largely did that. And obviously it worked, even though they registered voters and were really busy. Susan Wilde is the member who went back to Congress. You bet. No, I, I look, a, a win is a win and a four point win uh, in the 2020 cycle is a, is a landslide. So what, um, what, what were the largest issues on the minds of voters? And did that, I'm sure the pandemic factored in, but uh, how much did that evolve from your original uh, team meetings in March uh, to post Labor Day? One of the Day? interesting things is that it really didn't evolve. The pandemic was the main issue of this election for us. How that was impacting small businesses and the local economy and frontline workers. The Lehigh Valley has a has a massive healthcare network. That was the number one issue from the day that I started to the day that I finished on that job. And so our job in running this campaign for an incumbent congresswoman was to have our congresswoman, our candidate, talk to talk to as many people as she could about what they were going through. Under like really listen to people about what they needed from her as they went through this insane crisis, and then talk about what she was doing in Congress to actually address what she had heard. We talked a lot about the Restaurants Act, which was a a bill that she co-sponsored to provide direct funds to restaurants and bars and in local economies to help survive this crisis when so many of them had been forced to close for so many months. Talked about a lot about the funding that she was able to secure personally for the Allentown school public school district, things like that. That was what people wanted to hear about. It wasn't just the message that we wanted to drive, right? Like that was actually what people cared about, understandably, because it was a very difficult year. So that was that was always the number one issue. I think the national media and to some extent, you know, statewide media often focused on more national issues in a lot of the time, but our message consistently remained very localized. And I think that was one of the reasons that we were ultimately successful. 
in this campaign. Susan Wilde talked about what mattered to people of the greater Lehigh Valley always, not what was necessarily, you know, on the front page of the New York Times or on the front page of Politico. So I think that was one lesson that we drew from this campaign for sure. You know, speaking of national media and issues and messaging that I don't think any candidate wanted to do in Pennsylvania, but had to do as we wind down, was this this really unique term, naked ballots, and really having to to, to teach your dyed-in-the-wool Democrat volunteers, uh, who in turn were teaching folks who might have just registered for the first time. But if you could speak, you, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation, I'll, I'll let you go soon, Katie, what, I mean... How were you getting kind of brass tacks saying, okay, this is the number we need in advance. These are the precincts yes. that we need to hit this number <laughs> at mail versus in person, you know, and then the, the, the whole process of curing ballots, uh, much has been talked about. would love to get granular. And I think our listeners would appreciate that. Well, yeah. I mean, we did do that at a granular level. We did know how many, how many ballots we needed especially after the, the numbers started being posted by the Secretary of State, we could track the number of ballots that had been returned and how many of those we thought were Democratic votes versus Republican votes and what that meant in terms of the number of ballots we needed tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that it, up until Election Day. So yes, it was done at a pretty <laughs> scientific level that way. The naked ballot issue was a real issue. And what I, what I mean by that is that it was very, it was very worrisome to all campaigns in the state of Pennsylvania, because this was the first election year in which any voter could vote with a no excuse mail-in ballot in the state of Pennsylvania, right? What that meant was that an immense amount of education had to be done around how to fill out that ballot correctly. And it was not always intuitive, depending on what county you lived in. (laughs) So helping voters sit down, not only read through the instructions, but actually give them instructions ourselves on how, how to actually accurately fill out that ballot to make sure that it was counted was a major part of our effort and particularly our field effort. I think this is something that we didn't talk about in our discussion about field. One of the reasons field was so important for us this year and why we devoted so much energy to making sure that we were mimicking as closely as we possibly could an in-person field program was because of this immense amount of voter education we had to do around mail-in ballots. So it was a huge aspect of our program. I think in the end, we actually ended up being pretty successful. There weren't as many naked ballots as we thought there would be which was a testament to <laughs> the amount of not only the effort of campaign of our campaign and, and campaigns like ours, but also the amount of resources that were poured in up and down the ballot into education efforts around this. I mean, there was a huge amount of money poured into digital ads on how to fill out your ballot correctly by the Joe Biden campaign in Pennsylvania. Like you said, celebrities got involved in this issue, kind of legislators from the state of Pennsylvania got involved in this issue by posing <laughs> with naked ballots. So it was, it was a huge, huge issue this time around. I guess the only good thing that you could say about this is that, while obviously it remains to be seen how many voters continue to choose to vote by mail. Uh, hopefully these education efforts kind of laid the groundwork for success in the future and people know how to do it correctly next time. You're here. You've been super generous with your time. We have a lot of student listeners. I'd be curious, but I think they'd be much more curious. You know, politics has changed so much. Uh, some would argue it's gotten so uh, uh, so personal and vindictive and ugly. But, you know, w- would you recommend uh, the career that you've pursued? And, and how does one, you know, reach these levels of being a top tier congressional campaign? Yeah, I mean, manager? I think not to sound cheesy, which this is inevitably going to sound, but if you grow up... <laughs> you grow up wanting to change the world in some way, this is the perfect job for you, right? I mean, you wake up every day working on making a better vision for 
the country and for the world. And that is, there's no better feeling than that. So yes, I would, of course I would talk about this. I think especially now when politics has gotten, as you said, like sometimes so dirty and negative and scary, as we've seen in the last month, I think there is no better time to get into politics. Um, And we need young people to do this kind of work with energy and so much creativity and fresh blood in this industry. That's exactly what we need. Yes, yeah, we need them in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, 2022 is going to be here before oh, we know right. it. And I think the money that we saw flowing is, I mean, it's going to be nothing compared to the Senate race, yeah. the governor's race, obviously the frontline exactly. congressional that's exactly members. Right. That's exactly right. Um, Working in campaigns is not, you don't, you don't have to know hard skill. I mean, you, you learn the hard skills by doing the work, right? Like you learn how to how to use all the tools that you use for fundraising, how to form a finance plan, how to use the tools you use for field, et cetera, et cetera. You learn those things. It's really a soft skill business. And it's, it's mostly about, in my experience, it's mostly about caring about the work that you're doing and caring about the relationships that you're building with the people around you. And if those are two things that you feel passionately about as a young person in conjunction with what I just said, you know, wanting to, wanting to get up every day and change the world, it's, it's a, I can't imagine a better career track. I don't even know that I would describe it as a career as much as like a, <laughs> a, way, a, a lifestyle for a lot of people. It's a vocation and an avocation. But Katie, thanks so much for for coming by my kitchen table and providing insight. And you know, we're all really eager to see what uh, where where you land next and where the twenty twenty two cycle well, takes so much uh, for having me. I'm, our party. I'm really honored that you asked me to join you. And if you have any students who ever want to talk to me, obviously, I'm doors always open. So thank you, thank you, thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. As Hillary Clinton used to say, it takes a village. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Sarah McGrath and Jake Schwartz. If you liked this discussion, we would love for you to give us a review, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a suggestion on a future guest and other feedback, visit our website, papoliticspodcast.org. Don't forget to follow us on social media at PA Political Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn.